This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Hi, I'm Susanna Boyer, Assistant Director at Research in Practice. This is the second in a series of three podcasts on Sarah's experience and knowledge of her brother being drawn into criminal exploitation. The previous episode analysed grooming and the push and pull factors of exploitation. And the final episode will look at the possibility of leaving. This episode will look at County Lines as a business model and its effects on family life, including what would have helped in Sarah's experience. We also discuss the role of power and the dual role of being both a victim and a perpetrator in a County Lines operation. Tell us a bit about how what you could see about the structure and organisation of that criminal exploitation. Yep, so I, I think they, because they obviously need regular amounts of money to find the kind of lifestyle they have, designer clothes, um, taking drugs themselves, uh, going out partying, um, driving really nice cars, mostly rentals so that they don't leave a trace, um, all kinds of different things. Um, they would they would wake up in the morning and follow an instruction from somewhere of, okay, I'll meet you here at this time or bring this. And they have code words for things. I mean, I, listening to him speaking in English, he'd be talking about all kinds of random stuff, some of which I was familiar with. Um, but it would, it would just, he'd, he'd just be up and showered and ready and leaving the, the, you know, at, leaving the house at a certain time to be in a certain place to meet somebody. He'd, at the beginning, it was um, taking drugs that he was keeping at home with him to go and meet somebody somewhere to sell it, to earn him money for that day. Later on, um, and more recently, um, maybe three years ago, was the most recent time that I'd seen this. Um, answering calls um, uh, and calling somebody else so some there'd be a demand call and then there'd be a supply call so he'd be calling somebody who's who's closer to that person and saying okay x person will meet you here at this time make sure you're there and then he'll go maybe 10 minutes before the meeting time call and make sure the guy's there to meet him and it's it's always done on non-smartphones um and there is a network and schedule and a high expectation. Um, and just logistically, things get moved around very intelligently and through um, means that are often untraceable. And if they're traceable, maybe not so easy to understand. They've got their own language that they operate with. And um, Why non-smartphones? I don't know. I think they just imagine that it's more traceable, um, and also it stops. Uh, so they wouldn't have any communicating apps that could be tapped into. It's just normal calling. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really know. And this thing of having more than one phone was kind of more a than one phone. Thing. Yeah. So you'd have one phone. So you'd have this a supply number and a demand number so they'd be the number that you'd use and answer no matter what within your own group and then you'd have the supply number so if you didn't have stock for example that, that mobile would be off um, and also to avoid being on for loads of time I mean removing sim cards so it's not traceable things like that um, 
it would always be the supply number I presume that would be traceable by the police because your own your own you know circle are not going to expose you um, if there's ever a snitch it will usually be on the supply number I presume it's difficult because by that time they're so indoctrinated in this way of life within this subculture of the same people and waiting waking up in the morning waiting for instructions of what their day in that social environment is going to control it might be let's gather around and go and stab somebody in another area it could be okay we've got this much um you know stock of cannabis we need to shift or we need to move here or or it's x person's birthday party let's go and take these drugs and dish them out or whatever they want to do that it's always until they're the the ringleader it that it's always their time is always dictated by somebody else and there's been times where it's been my birthday I, I used to work abroad so I'd come back and it, it would be either my birthday or my dad's birthday somebody's birthday even his own birthday and we'd organize something for him and tell him like a week before and the day would come and he'd just just forget about all the plans and just say yeah I'll, I'll see you guys at maybe 6 p.m and he'd be back at three o'clock in the morning and just, he'd be like, well, it was my thing. It's, and I'm fine not having, mm. not being celebrated because there was always, there's, there was something, there was a schedule that they would follow all the time. That's it's, interesting to talk about. So it's quite, what from your perspective, it was it looked really very organized from dawn to dusk kind of thing. How did, how was that transmitted yeah. to him? Did, yeah, it, it was more from dusk to dawn. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, he'd wake up at ridiculous hours of the morning and his phone would ring and he'd be showered and out of the door. And just my dad tried at the beginning asking him what time he'd be back and he, he might have given him, you know, picked a number from his head. Um, but nothing was respected about where he lived. He'd, he'd bring all kinds of people back home. Um, he just there was no there was no boundary just thinking about sort of from nine to the GCSE time and just reflecting on that time is there anything that you think in terms of any aspect of that in terms of professional help or school help or um, how help to support your parents can, is there anything you can imagine that might have come in there that might have made a difference um, I think at the beginning, there there wasn't a lot at school that he was doing wrong. Um, so for maybe calling out in class or stuff like that, this is even up to kind of year seven, year eight kind of time. Um, I think after he started getting expe- uh, suspended quite frequently, there, there should have been something that um, kind of like an independent or one person assigned with the task of having to monitor him regularly and usually I think it's it's something that the head of year or or somebody is Mm. left in charge of kind of monitoring progress or attendance or or just behavior behavior with other children um but those people usually have so many other responsibilities Mm. And it just, I think, if if from the moment that they they started seeing him going the wrong way, if they'd have just monitored him closer, 
um, had a better dialogue um, with my parents. Maybe my dad was not involved at all in the dialogue, but but just with my mum, if they'd have encouraged her um, to be more in contact with them and provided an environment of I think at that at that stage I don't know if it's still like this now but at that time I don't know they they relied a lot on parents doing their bit to keep mm -hmm. their child at school and you know on the straight and narrow but I feel like when the child is not at home there's very little that a parent can do at that age possibly earlier that it, a child is more impressionable and malleable to a certain extent but then later um when they're so um they're fixed in their ways they have a character personality and and just they they know what they like to do at school and they have that social group around them it's hard to have any sort of control um i think um yeah so having somebody close mm. close to him um and also somebody who, who my mum could confide in. He should have definitely, I mean, counselling was an option at school and it is always an option at school, isn't it? I had it myself, um, but it should have been something that was compulsory for him after, at least after he'd thrown the brick into the, the dual carriageway. It should have been something that was, mm. you know, it just seems like an obvious no-brainer that the child must be emotionally unstable in some way and must have something that they need to express or mm. uh, even if it's just truancy bad behavior or or just a bad mood that day there there was something behind needing to do this mm. um, and that should be explored more yeah somebody and, to sort of get under the skin of what's going on yeah and, and was there i mean you mentioned the police officer who was a family friend but maybe that wasn't a particularly a relationship that your brother had i don't know was there anybody there the possibility of a relationship with anybody that might have kind of opened a window to something different um no 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 i don't think so but that's kind of what you're that's what I'm hearing you say about somebody getting a bit more involved, that if there'd been somebody who did yeah. to form that relationship with him. The environments that my brother and me grew up in, if you compared the two of us, a lot of bad things happened to both of us growing up. But I didn't see an excuse for why I should be any different to anybody else. I still saw all the opportunities ahead of me and I felt it was my choice to make myself subject to it or not. And whenever I've seen him, I think maybe he had different experiences, obviously, and people would react differently. But I feel like he victimized himself and because he found so many easy routes to making money, he he, he felt it, it quite easy to make excuses for himself not to be able to follow more conventional lifestyles. He 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 liked the fact that he had good reason from having uh, awful things happen to him as a child um, within the gangs, getting beaten up. I mean, he's he's been hammered in the head before um, 
beaten up, kidnapped, loads of different things. Um, but at the same time, um, he uses his pe parents as an excuse and their divorce as, as a reason for why he he just doesn't think that he could do um, normal things. He, he, he uses it as an excuse for why he couldn't finish his education. Now he uses his um, criminal record as a reason why he can't go back into education or get a job. And he should really have a good idea of where his choices have led him and um, understand fully the options that are available to him. So we've used that as a, a way of doing the research for him, finding what routes he has, um, who will give him work, who will give him work experience, where he can do apprenticeships, etc. Um, he will always find a way of of showing interest and saying, yeah, I'm really going to try, as a, a, at least as a face for us, and then somehow avoiding it. If I look at my brother now, um, and I compare mentally how much he's grown, it's as though that 12-year-old boy grew into something awful until the age of 17. And then by the time he was 17, rather than being younger and hanging out with 17-year-olds, he was then around a lot of people his own age with similar kinds of um, interests. He's picking up people to be friends with around that same age bracket again between 17 and 21 22 of people who've come out of school who probably are physically quite strong um into um the same kind of ways of making money because they're not able they, they don't have gcse's most of them they don't have any way of earning an income um they don't have much to do with their time they don't live in very nice places. Um, so now yeah. he's kind of graduated to the upper end of that. Yeah, and he, and but mentally, uh, that his social level and that that the social level of interaction has stayed around that age. I mean, that he's as he, between the ages of kind of seventeen and when he was in that age bracket to now, he's just been losing friends who've either gone into like building work or found some other type of occupation to keep them busy it might be that they've stemmed off and done exactly what he's doing now um but it's always it, it's as though he's kind of stayed in the bubble and had to find his his um domain through recruiting people to keep him in some sort of a money earning position and mm. powerful and yeah he's he's known for, for what he is and what he does. I mean, they each have um, their own names, They're a completely different name uh -huh. to their birth name. Um, they, they have names between them and then they have names for people that they sell drugs to. Um, there's all different kinds of uh, things that I would associate with uh, that kind of criminal culture that that keeps them thriving off one another's uh, anger, um, pride, different things that just fuel the existence of the gang and make them expand because they they just keep recruiting more and more and more, and that's what that 
because it's kind of like a pyramid of people, um, whether it's according to age or strength or whatever it is, whoever's looked up to in the gang feels that sense of accomplishment that they probably lacked in other areas of their life. And as long as they're doing things and earning money, um, I mean, just listening to grime music alone, you can see that making money by any means is the most glorified aspect of living and whatever you have to do to make your money, you do it. So we've talked a bit about um, money and shoes and clothes and things like that, but mm. you, you've also reflected that it, money really wasn't the primary thing no. that he was getting there. So what are the other kind of aspects of things that were the, the rewards, if you like, that for your brother out of that experience? It could be anything from being treated to a meal by the elder of the group or um, or being able to just ride in a, a, maybe a rented Range Rover for the day to go and dr- deliver some drugs. I mean, it's not... Although they're all dressed very nicely and have, you know, the, the latest of all kinds of designer clothes, it's it's more the image and the power of moving in a group um, of with a family type environment of where you belong and knowing that you're you're feared and that you can get whatever you want you can behave however you want I mean one example that I mentioned earlier my my brother had said to my mum from prison that I it's not about the money um, Sometimes I've had £5,000 in my pocket and I've had to to just throw it into a river just so there's no traces to me. It's it's just about the ability to be able to get that money. I mean, there have been a few times that I've found him on Instagram while he's in prison um, sharing videos of himself with handfuls of cash and just throwing it up in the air like... He's in Crystal Maze or something. It's just ridiculous just how he... It just... that It's, it's not about the money. It's the, it's the power. It's about, I want to do this and I can get away with it and no one can stop me. And I know all the avenues in which you would try to stop me, but I'm, I can surpass them very easily because I, I've got the experience and I've got the team behind me to cover my back. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'd encourage you to listen to episodes one and three in the series to better understand Sarah's experience. Those look at why Sarah thinks her brother was exploited, particularly the push and pull factors and the barriers to overcome in order to leave a county lines operation. There are helpful resources listed in the show notes, including resources on county lines, exploitation and safeguarding. Tweet, research, IP, and let us know your thoughts on what you've heard today. Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.com.